Jim Jones with People's Temple Children James Warren Jones, known familiarly as Jim, had a dream of starting an integrated church in segregated Indianapolis, and he was successful at realizing his dream. However, despite Jones's desire for integration within his church, it still held on to the system of white supremacy as far as leadership, People's Temple's Planning Commission, as Jones called his leadership council, was dominated by white women, at least six of whom were his sexual conquests and firmly under his sway. Rev. Dr. Amos Brown, who moved to San Francisco's Fillmore in 1976, was wary of Jones from the beginning. Brown went to the first black leadership force meeting at Geary and Stanion Streets, where they debated whether or not they should accept Jones as a member. He advised the audience at the meeting of the impending danger he believed Jones presented at the time, calling Jones a crook and cultist. By one vote, Jones lost becoming a member of the black leadership force. Sikivu Hutchinson, author of the novel White Nights, Black Paradise organized a discussion with Jonestown survivors Leslie Wagner Wilson, Yolanda Williams, Jordan Vilches, and Rebecca Moore who lost three family members in the massacre. There were several former members of People's Temple in the audience, which was crowded with curious people from around the area. As Ms. Hutchinson wrote on her very informative website Black Jonestown, both Leslie and I have critiqued the racial and gender hierarchy that existed in the movement's leadership, and the degree to which Jones's white women lieutenants were complicit in its escalating climate of intimidation, abuse, and harassment. During one exchange, Leslie and Yolanda took issue with Rebecca's characterization of power and authority in Jonestown. While Leslie and Yolanda recalled that African-American members had little official authority in Jonestown, Rebecca made reference to the diverse work assignments that black folks fulfilled. Leslie and Yolanda vividly recalled the harsh living conditions in Jonestown and compared it to being in a slave camp. What came through most powerfully in these exchanges was the differing class positions Jonestown members had within the compound's power structure, with younger white women being the most privileged and favored. Leslie and Yolanda also emphasized the pivotal role Jones's whiteness played in eliciting support and adulation in the black community. A lot of People's Temple members did not like the white leadership, labeling the women as uptight and bitchy. I'm sure many of them were, I have encountered the same issue with women in charge. Jones's discriminatory ways are one reason the eight revolutionaries defected. The group, also referred to as the Gang of Eight, pointed out that whites advanced more quickly in people's temple than did blacks. Most importantly, the eight revolutionaries left the movement for political reasons, claiming that the temple's actions and concerns did not match its rhetoric. For the past six years all staff have concerned themselves with have been the castrating of people, calling them homosexual, sex, sex, sex. What about socialism? Dash Jonestown SDSU. Jones in Guyana. The story of sex and power within the People's Temple is also a story of whiteness and power, as it was an open secret that Jones tended to confine his sexual attentions to white people. Jones cast this behavior in a revolutionary light, he didn't wish to perpetuate the history of black women being sexually exploited by white men. Meanwhile, privileged white people were seen as more fickle in their commitment to socialism, and therefore in need of a personal relationship with the cause to secure their loyalty. Whatever the justification, Jones's tendency to promote those he was sleeping with led to the establishment of a primarily privileged and white leadership. They became, in their fashion, a ruling class within the socialist utopia. On what grounds is staff chosen? The eight revolutionaries declaimed in a letter to Jones. New white, upper-middle-class folk seem to be trusted and treated better than black folk who have proven their loyalties through the years. 
The women who enabled Jones and carried out his orders were rather ordinary. Carolyn Layton, the overachiever. Karen, the socialite. Annie, the artist. Maria, the shy horse lover. Harriet, the lawyer. They wore earrings, kept themselves awake with coffee, laughed over the funny things children do. They never would have called themselves white supremacists. Yet, in their eagerness to sacrifice themselves for the cause, Jones's true believers saw their death in the abstract and by extension, the lives of hundreds of people. Over two-thirds of those who died in Jonestown were African-American, the majority of them women and children. The role of white women in Jonestown is a stark reminder that even the most progressive among us may be inclined to support dominant power structures when it suits us, remaining silent in the face of abuses of power, and even being complicit in the silencing of others. Laura Elizabeth Willett, Bitch Media Black people, who tend to be more spiritual and religious than any other ethnic group, also tend to worship their religious leaders more than others, with the exception of fanatical cult members such as the Fundamentalist Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Islamic extremists, and the like. I have attended churches on Sunday mornings where it was obvious that the pastor was held in very high regard by the members, particularly the women. Baptist and Pentecostal church members especially are prone to this behavior, I have found. Is this why black women were so drawn to Jim Jones's flashy persona and pro-black preaching style? Is this how he ensnared so many blacks, along with the us-versus-them rhetoric in which he railed against the racist whites of America who were after the People's Temple because they saw the racially integrated, socialist church as a threat to its capitalistic white supremacist hierarchy? We will never know Jones's true intentions because he took it all to the grave with him in 1978. The Aftermath at Jonestown Writing for Were Your Voice Mag on the 40th anniversary of the Jonestown Massacre, Sharonda Brown opined that Jim Jones was the ultimate liberal, performing as a liberal ally to black people was something that Jones had done ever since he realized that he could use such an identity to gain notoriety and the admiration of other white liberals. He had wooed his wife, Marceline, in part by bragging about how he once quit a basketball team and walked out of a barbershop with his hair half-cut because of other white men expressing anti-black sentiments. It wasn't until years later that she learned, or realized, that it was all bullshit, just another part of the Jim Jones act. But in their happy early years, the couple would carefully and intentionally build a rainbow family, seeking out and adopting black and brown children so that they could be seen as a constant, unmistakable example of racial harmony. He was a master at performing ally theater. When we remember Jonestown, we need to remember how Jim Jones performed his ally theater to lure so many poor black people, and guilt-ridden white liberals, under his control, and eventually to their death. This is the part of the Jonestown story that never really gets talked about, but it is undoubtedly the most significant. So many of us have spent our lives knowing about the fictions of Jonestown, but not about its realities. When we retell this devastating story, we cannot erase these realities. We cannot forget how Jones exploited the most vulnerable, specifically seeking out low-income black communities, profiting from them, and playing to their fears of white violence. And he did this, not because he wanted equality, equity, reparations, or liberation for black people, but because he wanted power and control over them. Not only was Jim Jones the ultimate liberal but he was a white supremacist as well. Jonestown Diana